Well, thank you so much, Mark. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. While you're turning there, just wanted to uh, bring greetings from the folks in San Diego. Uh, it's always a blessing to come up here and to uh, be with you here in San Jose. As we were pulling into the uh, parking lot, I was telling Ted that... Uh, <clears throat> Every time I come up here, it turns into a game of whose names I can remember. Uh, and uh, I really, uh, I'm sad about it. I wish, uh, you know, I wish San Jose was a lot closer so that we could spend a lot more time together and, and, and grow in relationship. Uh, it's always fun when I come up here and I'm like, oh, you had a kid? Oh, you have two? Uh, you know, and just trying to catch up on people's lives and, and uh, be with all of you. Uh, it's, it's a real joy for me. Uh, the church in San Diego is doing well. Um, obviously, uh, COVID is doing its thing. Uh, I was telling the elders that we probably had, I don't know, four or five cases within the last, uh, last couple of years that we announced kind of sporadically throughout the whole pandemic. And then this past week and a half, I think it's like 12 or 13 cases uh, all hit us at once. And uh, it's moving pretty fast, it seems. And so, um, you know, Grateful for the response and grateful for the leaders who are providing good leadership through this time. And uh, just to kind of catch up on things, Merry Christmas, Happy Thanksgiving, <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, you know, it's just really great to be able to celebrate the holidays, even just as a reminder of God's faithfulness and His goodness to us, which is really the theme of our passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, if you're taking notes, the title is Two Unchangeable Things. Two unchangeable things, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 17 and 18. But to set up the context, I'm going to start reading in verse 9, and this is God's word. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath is given as confirmation, uh, is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Will you pray with me as we ask God to help us as we open up his word together? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word that you have revealed to us by your Spirit 
that we might know your thoughts, that we might know, Lord, what your will is for our lives. We thank you, God, especially for what your word reveals about who you are, that you are a God unchanging, immutable, constant, and that we can find our hope and our confidence in you. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we study your word together, it would come as a great encouragement to our souls, that it would challenge us in our thinking, that our thoughts would be your thoughts and our ways your ways, because your thoughts are infinitely higher than ours, your ways infinitely higher than ours. And so help us, Lord, to love you with a whole heart and humbly come in submission to your word and to your will. And work in us, God, to help us grow in you, we pray, that we might accomplish your purposes and live for your glory. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love to us. And we pray, Father, that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a whole lot of themes in this passage, and we're going to touch on some of them this morning. But one is related to what Mark was talking about earlier, the hope that we have as believers. And I'm sure this is a theme that has been taught here in this pulpit again and again, how our hope as believers is not like the hope of the world, right? The hope of Christmas to the world is, I hope I get that Vespa, or I hope I get that Tesla, or I hope I get that, you know, you fill in the blank. I, I said Vespa because I really want a Vespa. Uh, but... Uh, you know, when you think about the hope of this world, really what hope boils down to is wishful thinking. I hope I win the lottery someday. I hope I get that gal. I hope I get that promotion or whatever. But for the believer, our hope is, is sure. It's a confidence that we have uh, in, a, in a future that is set because a God who has promised. Uh, our hope is secure. And this is one of the themes that runs through here in Hebrews chapter 6, that we have a hope that is set before us, a hope that serves as an anchor for our souls. We have a hope that we cling to as believers because it's rested upon a God who doesn't change. This idea of God's immutability, uh, when we talk about God's immutability, it's also referred to as his constancy. Uh, R.C. Sproul talks about it as a truth that is, uh, it is incredibly significant and profound, and yet unfortunate that it's such an underappreciated and underrated biblical truth. The idea of immutability means that God is unchanging, and it has to do with the fact that God, you know, doesn't change. But when you when you think about it in those terms, it can be somewhat misleading. Does that mean that God is static, immobile, you know? If he, does, if he, if he changes in anything, you know, does it violate his immutability? I mean, even looking at the opening pages of Scripture, in six days he created all that was, and, and then in, on the seventh day he rested. Isn't that a change, right? And, and so in what way, when we talk about the immutability of God, uh, are we saying that he is unchanging, you know, in the scriptures, we see times where he's pleased with men and times where it seems he's pretty upset. And we, we see these things in the Bible that seem to indicate that God is somewhat changing in his dealings with men. And so what do we mean when we say he's unchanging? Well, one thing is when you take a look at this doctrine biblically, 
you come to find that his constancy or his immutability is oftentimes tied to the idea of his faithfulness or his dependability. It doesn't mean that God is static or immovable. It doesn't mean that he doesn't change in any way at all. But immutability really has to do with the fact that God will not change in regard to his nature. And he certainly won't change in regard to his word. In other words, he is absolutely dependable. Dependable. That God is God and he will never cease to be God. And when God speaks, his word is true and will not change. His immutability in that way touches everything else about who he is. It's kind of like when we talk about the holiness of God and how God's holiness touches all of his other attributes. That yes, he is gracious, but it's a holy grace. That he is loving, but it's a holy love. That it's set apart from anything that we would know in this world to be grace and to be love. But his immutability likewise touches all that he is. That he is all-powerful and he will never cease to be all-powerful. That he is loving and he is unchanging in his lovingness. Right? That God is unchanging means that he will never violate his nature. He will never cease to be God. He is sovereign. He will never relinquish his sovereignty. He is all-powerful and he will never weaken. He's all-knowing and he'll never learn anything. He is unchanging in who he is. And this is significant because when you look at the world around us, everything is changing. Everything is changing. Isn't that true? I mean, it's astounding to me even to look at the culture and how, I don't know about you, I feel like we're living in the days of the judges. Just in, in the moral depravity of this culture and the downward spiral of our society, it seems like yeah, you, might, you can argue till you're blue in the face if this nation was ever the Lord's. But if one thing is true, it does seem in recent years that this world is spiraling faster and faster away from the things of God. Calling what is evil good. Calling what is good evil. Uh, this has become the culture that we live in. Everything seems to be changing. Politically, things change. Even just the fabric of our society, even the way that we, you know, handle this virus. Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? Do we trust the vaccine? Do we not trust the vaccine? Do we trust the media? Do we not trust the media? And who's going to be sitting in office? And who's going to, I mean, you can ask question after question after question, and it seems like everything seems to be changing, and there's no stability to any of it. Everything is changing. And you're constantly changing. You're not the same person you were a second ago. If in if no, if no other way, you're a second older, right? You're constantly changing. There was a philosopher, Heraclitus, who said that famously that you, you can't step into the same river twice. You can't step into the same river twice. Why? Because you're not the same man, and that's not the same river. The water has flowed by. Rocks have moved. And, and, and if nothing else, you've changed yourself. Everything is in constant flux. Everything is changing. And so it's, it's, it is significant. R.C. Sproul was famous for talking about the immutability of God in this way, that in that way, it really is only fitting to call God a being. 
Like it's almost a misnomer to refer to ourselves as human beings. We really should be called human becomings. Because we're constantly changing. But God is immovable. God is unchanging. God is immutable. And that's the theme for this morning. In in verses 17 and 18 here in Hebrews 6, he says this, In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There are two unchangeable things, and so I think somewhat predictably our outline is going to have two points. What are two truths that you can completely bank on with your lives? What are two truths that you can completely bank your lives on? Because that's really the outcome of all of this. When we think about who God is in his faithfulness, really what, it re- what results from it is that we can take our entire lives, our entire being, and entrust it to him because he's faithful. We'll walk through why that is, but two truths that you can completely bank your lives on. And the first we see at the beginning of verse 17, that God's word is unchanging. God's word is unchanging. In other words, God will not break his promises. God's word is unchanging. In other words, God will not break his promises. And again, just by way of contrast, think about you. Think about your lives. As I think about my, my own life and my own testimony and my own existence, I'll tell you I am a person who sometimes breaks promises. It's not that I do this purposefully. It's not like I'll come to you and say, hey, I promise I'll do this thing. Well, you know, deviously inside, I'm thinking I'm never going to do it. <laughs> right? No. But I, I don't know. I can't tell the future. Even in this weekend, coming up here, I was communicating with Mark and Ted and just telling them, like, I don't know, I'm traveling on the 1st of January, and I've been hearing on the news about thousands of flights being canceled, and while I'd love to be up here with you, I think we have to plan for that. I'm on one of the last flights of the day, and if there's any delay or cancellation, I might not make it. I hate that, but I don't know, I can't control that. I have a five-year-old daughter now. It's wild to think that my youngest is five. And I don't know, she's still cute and squishy, but now that she's five, she can communicate a lot better. And if you have kids, you, you know this. You know, kids are really good to remind you of when you don't keep your word. Dad, didn't you say, you know, didn't you say, it was just the last week we said we were going to go out and get ice cream, and, uh, and we didn't. I, you know, that was my fault as a parent, first for promising it. And second, for not following through. And yeah, your kids will be quick to remind you, Dad, you promised. You said we were going to get ice cream. You know, to which you respond, well, I didn't foresee how tired you were going to make me. <laughs> you know, ice cream's kind of far away. And that means we've got to get you in a car, and it's been raining. And yeah, I mean, there's no bad weather for ice cream. But still, right? Uh, we are prone to break our promises. But God is not. I think about our our own lives, and probably there's no stronger promise, humanly speaking, that we make amongst ourselves in our marriage covenant. Yes? I think about the marriage covenant, to you and you alone, in sickness and in health, 
and richer and poorer, you know, till death do us part. And, and, and think about what it means when we get married, that we are married according to the laws of the state, that we make our vows before the sight of God, that we are married before the church, that we make our vows in the presence of loved ones who serve as witnesses. And in a sense, all of these factors, whether it's before God or in the eyes of the state or before the church or before our loved ones, right? We make these promises before all of these witnesses. Why? Because we're prone to being promise breakers, that we need this accountability. We need a contract that we sign to say that we are not going to violate this contract. We need people who will surround us as accountability. We need the accountability of a church that helps us in times of conflict and helps us when we start going astray to bring us back to where we need to be. And as a husband, while I want to be consistent in my love and care and support for Christine, I have to admit that there are times, more often than I want to admit, that I fail. That I'm not the husband that I need to be at all times. That I'm not the father that I need to be at all times. That I'm not the promise keeper that I want to be. And not just as a husband and as a father, but even just as a Christian. As much as I want to be unswerving in my commitment to the Lord, how often do I find myself in places of compromise, in places of struggle, where I'm not as strong as I need to be and I'm not as faithful as I want to be, how often I fail in being the man of God that God calls me to be. And yeah, this is a theme in my life and maybe even in yours. If we take enough time to think about it, it can be quite discouraging to think about how miserable a failure I can be at times. That my life at times is characterized by inconsistency and unfaithfulness. But not with God. God never breaks His promises. And He is always faithful to His word. It's Numbers 23, 19. You know, we do the ballast training and that's one of the easier passages to remember because of Monsters, Inc., 2319, right? Uh, you can stream that out. Because how badly would you panic if God lied or if God changed your mind? And, and Numbers 2319 is a great reminder that God is not a man like us, that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is faithful to his promises. And so that's the first unchangeable thing that we see here. The first unchangeable thing is that God has promised. He's promised. And in this context, the author of Hebrews, generally speaking, is talking about the promise of salvation. He's talked about it since verse 9, when he says that we are convinced of better things concerning you. And we'll talk about why it's better in just a second. But he, he goes on, and in verse 11, says that you know, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. This is really a passage about the assurance of salvation. How will you know that your faith is going to be secure to the end? How will you know that once saved, always saved? And, and this is important for us. 
Because in the conversations that we oftentimes have in the church about whether a person's faith is genuine or not, or whether there is a sense of assurance in a person's testimony, we immediately go to the idea of the fruit in their lives. Do you see love in their life? Do you see change in their life? Do you see a hating of sin and a loving of righteousness? And while that's not inappropriate, because we see the Bible point to the fruit of our life as the genuine, you know, thing that we ought to look for. I love what the author of Hebrews does here to point us to something that's more foundational than that. That it's not just about our performance. We have an assurance because of who God is. Namely, that He's made a promise. He's made a promise. And there is no greater promise than that, is there? Than the promise of the gospel. There's a cliche question that's oftentimes asked in the church. That when you die, and this is a great question for you to ponder. When you die and one day you stand before God, and by the way, whether or not you believe that there is a God, you're going to stand before him. You could be the proverbial ostrich with your head in the sand and pretend like he's not there. But one day you are going to give an account for your life and you will stand before God as your judge. And when that day comes, what will be your defense? On that day, what would be your answer? And here's the question that people ask. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Because the Bible tells us that we can't bank it on our deeds. All of our deeds are like a filthy garment before the Lord. What can we possibly do that can measure up to the standard of His holy perfection? We can't measure up to it. So we can't bring the argument of our good deeds. We can't say, God, I was charitable. I was moral. I tried, you know, I went to church. I gave money in the basket. You know, I did, I, I served in ministries. I sang the songs. We can't point to our behavior. Our sin gets in the way. We can't point to our heritage and our upbringing. We can't point to the faith of our fathers. If God asked that question, why should I allow you into my kingdom? What would your response be? Because you know what the response really ought to be is this. When God looks at you and says, why should I let you into my kingdom? It's God, really, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer that hasn't been tainted by my sin. I have nothing to bring to the table that isn't offensive to you because of my existence, because of my rebellion against you. Because of my sinfulness. I shouldn't gain entrance. There's no reason here for you to allow me into your kingdom. Except for this, God. You made a promise. You promised that if I trust in your son for salvation, that I could be forgiven. 
And that is unspeakable grace because there's nothing I do to contribute to that. There's nothing I do to merit that or to earn that for myself. God, you simply made a promise. You made a promise that your son would come and live that perfect life in my place. You made a promise that your son would come and die on the cross for my sins. You made a promise that he would pay my penalty and that my debt would be paid in full without my contribution to any of it. That if I just trust in your son and what he did in his death and his resurrection, that I could be forgiven of my sins, my sin removed from me, guilt, shame, gone in him because you promised. And that's what I'm banking on. Not that I've been faithful. Not that I've achieved it or earned it or merited it in any way, but God, that you're faithful to your promise. That you don't break your promises. That's where I rest my soul. There is no other answer to that question. He's promised. And in the beginning of verse 17, God is seeking to convince the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable nature of his purpose. Because as it says at the beginning of verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It reminds me of what it says in Titus 1-2. That God, who cannot lie, it says it there in Titus 1-2. And I don't know if you know this from Titus 1-2, but that phrase, who cannot lie, is an adjective. He is the unlying God. It describes who God is. He is the incapable of deceit God. That's who he is. It's descriptive of our God. How wonderful it is that we worship and serve a God who cannot lie, who cannot change his mind, who is unchanging in his purpose, unchanging in his nature, unchanging in his word. Think about how terrifying it would be if God changed his mind. Again, 2319, right? How terrifying it would be if tomorrow God said, you know what, I changed my mind. Kevin, I changed my mind. Salvation is no longer through my son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you want forgiveness of sins, you need to be able to swim the English channel. That's how it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but I'd be doomed. I can tread water for about eight seconds. You know, I'm not proud of that fact. It's just true. I oftentimes said if I was on a cruise ship and accidentally fell overboard, I wouldn't even try. I mean, why die tired? Right? Just drown and go home. If God changed his mind and all of a sudden said, here's the prerequisite, you have to swim the English channel, I would be in all sorts of trouble. You know? Or if God said, you have to learn algebra, I'd be in all sorts of trouble. I'm like that Asian guy who doesn't do math. Any non-math people? History majors? I was a history major. You know, that was me. I wasn't math or science. Not because I was bad at it, because it was boring. No, but if God changed the parameters, if God changed the parameters, how, how terrifying would that be? If God all of a sudden, and this is really what it comes down to, said, Eric, 
you've failed so often. It seems like you keep coming back to me with the same request for forgiveness. And you know what? I've had enough. I've had enough of your unfaithfulness. I've had enough of your failures. I'm going to reject you as my child. I mean, how terrifying would it be if God changed his mind? If his purposes were changing. But they're not. He made a promise. And insofar as he's made a promise, his promise is sure because his word is truth, right? He made a promise and his word is truth. And so we can trust in that promise. We can trust in that promise. And so the first aspect of God's immutability is that he's faithful to his word. That he will not violate his word. That when he makes a promise, his promise is sure. And isn't this the foundation of the ministry of this pulpit? That we preach the word of God and we preach it in succession, verse by verse, doctrine by doctrine. Why? Because his word is trustworthy. This is why we don't preach ourselves. This is why we don't preach our culture. This is why we don't preach vaccines or whatever. You fill in the blank. We preach God's word. We bring the gospel to bear on your life because this is unchanging. When everything else around us seems to be in constant flux, we have an anchor for our souls that will not fail us. And so we come back to this week after week. Where am I going to get a sense of stability in a world that is constantly changing? Where am I going to find any semblance of hope when I'm constantly changing? When I constantly find myself unfaithful, I go back to the God who is faithful. And I anchor my soul to Him. That's the idea here. Again, that you can take your entire life and put your complete trust in the Word of God because His Word is sure. That's the first point. The second is this. That not only is His Word unchanging, But secondly, God's nature is unchanging. Not only will God not break his promises, but secondly, there is nothing greater than God. And the remainder of the passage talks about this. Verses 17 and 18. Not only is God's word unchanging, but God's nature is unchanging. Not only does he not break his promises, but there is none greater than our God. Listen to what he says. In the same way God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his, of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God not only made a promise, but it was interposed with an oath. That word interposed literally means to stand as a mediator, to stand between two parties. That God promised Abraham, and then he sealed it with an oath. He sealed it with an oath. That's the second unchangeable thing. Not only that God promised, but that he also sealed it with an oath. And after having talked about the unchangeableness of God's 
word that when he makes a promise, he won't break his promise. I hope you can see how unnecessary it was for God to speak an oath. If his promise is sure, if his word is secure, if he is unchanging in terms of his purposes, then isn't it enough just for God to say it's going to be? Yes? And so why go the additional step to interpose it with an oath? Why do that? If God made a promise and his word is truth, why does he additionally need to make an oath? And the answer to the question is, he doesn't. He doesn't have to make an oath. His word is sure. If he says it's going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. So why the oath? Well, he does it anyway. He makes the oath anyway. Why? Not for his sake, but for our sake. To show us how unchangeable his purpose is. Not only does he assure us that he's unchanging so that when he makes a promise, that promise is unchanging, but just to seal it, just to make it doubly sure for us, let me seal it with an oath. And when he's talking about that oath, it's actually referring back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, if you want to flip back there, it's a chapter that's familiar, I think, to a lot of you. In Genesis chapter 22, this is that passage where God says to Abraham, to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the Mount Moriah, and there offer him as a sacrifice. Just an unthinkable thing uh, for any father to be commanded by God to take their only son to this place and to offer him as a sacrifice. Without going into all the details, you can talk to Mark and Ted you know, to explain all of that to you. But Abraham obeys God. And does as he says. And as a result of that faithfulness, God stays his hand and says, don't plunge that knife into your son. And in verse 15, it says this, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is what the author of Hebrews is referring to when he says that God interposed with an oath. Did you see it at the beginning of verse 15 when God says, by myself I have sworn. That's the oath. Because just in the previous context here in Hebrews 6, he talks about the oaths that we make. That we make these promises, right? And when a person promises, they swear by something greater than themselves. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That our yes should be yes and our no, no. That there really is no need for an oath. Because in the Jewish culture, they would oftentimes swear by the sun or by the moon, invoking some higher thing that is greater than them. As much as, the, the, as faithful as the sun shines in the sky, so I'll be faithful to my word. And so Jesus says, there's no need 
As, a, as, a, as an inhabitant of the kingdom of God, there is no need to swear on the Son. Just be faithful as God is faithful. Let your yes be yes. James talks about this. In James chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. In other words, we should be keepers of our word. As followers of our God who doesn't lie, we don't have to make these oaths. We know this. You know, when we make promises, you know, we hear similar language. I swear on my life. I swear on my mother's grave. You know, we, we make these promises invoking something that is greater than ourselves to show how serious we are in making this promise. But here's the thing. There is nothing greater than God. He can't swear by the Son. He created the Son. He's greater than the Son. There's, there's nothing by which he can, he can call upon that's greater than He is. And so when He makes the oath to Abraham, what does He say? I swear on myself. Because <laughs> there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. I swear on myself that I'll keep my word. And God makes the oath. He makes the oath. This idea that there is nothing greater than our God relates to his perfection, to his holiness. God is perfect, amen? He's perfect. And when you have something that is perfect, there's no such thing as perfecter. There's no such thing as perfecter. Are you food people? Do you like to cook? I like to cook. And I have this braised short rib recipe that I think is perfect. I mean, it is delicious. You got to come down. We'll, we'll make it for you. It's delicious. Prime short rib, you know, just amazing. Falls apart. It's super tender. It's amazing. But I can imagine, because, you know, I'm not perfect. I can imagine someone coming along and saying, why don't you just add, I don't know, this? It's impossible. It's perfect. But maybe in, in the great realm of possibilities could someone come and say if you just added i don't know a half teaspoon more garlic or just another sprig of thyme it would it would be even better is that possible certainly it's possible unthinkable but possible because when you have something that's perfect there's no such thing as perfecter and in that sense, perfection, by definition and by nature, is unchanging. It's unchanging. Because if God were to change for the better tomorrow, that means he wasn't perfect today. If God were to learn something tomorrow that he didn't know today, that means he didn't have perfect knowledge today. If God were to get stronger tomorrow, it meant that he wasn't all-powerful today. Perfection by nature is unchanging. And any change in God would tend towards imperfection. If perfect changes, it no longer is perfect. Perfection is unchanging. 
This is why God swears upon himself. This is why when he makes the promise, he banks it on his immutability, his constancy. Not just one thing, but two things that are unchangeable, my promise and my oath. That all comes down to the fact that I am perfect. There is none greater than me. There is none that is unchanging like me. How often, when you go through the book of Leviticus and you read God's law, how often as he gives the commands to the people, does he stamp that punctuation at the end? I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. You are to do this. You are to do that. I am the Lord. This is why he stamps it, because he's perfect and unchanging and absolutely sovereign, that he is God and unchangingly God. He'll never cease to be God. He'll never relinquish his sovereignty. This is the idea that his immutability points to the fact that he is faithful to his name and he will not violate his nature. So he swears on himself. Isn't that great? Not only makes the promise, but seals it with an oath. And when you think about this, because this is a lot of theology to take in. And whenever you walk through theology, you ought to ask yourself the question, so what? What are the implications for my life? And here, we don't have to think very hard because the author of Hebrews gives it to us and tells us what the so what is. He provides it for us that the application, verse 18, is that the one who understands this truth, that understands these unchangeable things, can have an iskuron paraklesen, can have a strong encouragement. A strong encouragement, which takes us back to the phrase that he said in verse 9, that we know better things concerning you. Better things than what? Better things than the things that he had written before, verse, 19, or verse 9. That there were people in the church who were abandoning the faith, who were walking away from the gospel because of false teaching, because of the hardship of persecution. This is nothing surprising. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? In the parable of the soils. That there would be some of that seed that would fall upon that rocky soil. And when persecution comes, because it doesn't have root, it withers up and it dies. These are people who, when hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, receive it with joy. But because of the persecution that comes as a result of the faith, they fall away. And the author of Hebrews is writing in the context of people who have suffered persecution and are now deciding, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'll tell you, in the context of Christian ministry, there's maybe nothing more discouraging than that. Whether it's because of a, just a, a lust for personal sin, or whether it's false teaching that leads people astray, or whether it's just the hardship of life that causes people to think that it's not worth it. At least at Lighthouse San Diego, we've seen all three. 
Uh, we had a, a guy years ago who was saved out of a cult, went on missions with us to Argentina. We thought he was doing really well and just started thinking about the old teaching again until his conclusion was, you know what, God's not good because he doesn't make it clear. And he walked away from the faith. I remember a number of conversations in my office where I'm talking to members because they are in some kind of sinful relationship or enslaved to some kind of sinful desire. And it's shocking. And I'll tell them, I, I understand that this is something that you delight in, but I, I got to ask you the question, do you, like, do you delight in it enough to go to hell for it? And I've actually had members of our church tell us, yes. I know you're right. I know God hates this, but I'm not willing to let it go. And they walk away. And I've had people come to me in my office and tell me that they've gone through some trial. And you would think it would be some earth-shattering trial, but oftentimes it's not. Relatively speaking, sometimes it's something somewhat small, but because their faith had never been tested, they face it, and their one conclusion then is that God is not there, God is not good, and they walk away. And I just wonder, when the rest of the members hear about cases like this and people walking away from the faith, I wonder how many people in our congregation ask themselves, who's to say I'm not next? I mean, it seemed like those people had a semblance of faithfulness in their life. It seemed like they were going so well for years, and then they completely walked away and turned from Christ. I mean, who's to say I'm not next? To which the author of Hebrews says that we are convinced of better things concerning you. And I love the fact that he doesn't come back to because you're so faithful in your ministry. He doesn't come back to because you're so charitable in your giving. He doesn't come back to because you've shown a pattern of repentance from sin which are all good things, which are things that we should take encouragement in, but he goes to something more foundational. You trusted in a promise, and the one who promised is sure and unchanging and will not violate his nature or his purpose. He will not violate his word. We're confident in you because you trusted in the right gospel, in the right God, And so you ought to have a strong encouragement, a mighty encouragement. That's what the word means. And a hope that serves as an anchor for your soul. A hope that the God who promised is faithful, the God who gave you that salvation will carry it to the end because he's unchanging. He is unchanging. And so his word is sure. It's that promise of 2 Timothy chapter 2 that even when we are faithless, he remains what? He remains what? Faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. 
And so, folks, I would just encourage you to take hope. Take hope in this one amazing doctrine. That our God is immutable. That he's constant. And that has such a sweet application for our lives. That all, Yeah, he could have just promised. But he sealed the promise with an oath. To communicate doubly to us. He will not change his mind. He won't change. Because he's God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. What a joy it is each time we come to open up your word. Because it's your word, Lord, it's food for our souls. It's encouragement for our hearts. We need you, Lord. We need your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us to grow in it. Help us not to quickly forget your promises. Help us not to quickly forget our Savior with all the distractions of this world. And if anything, Lord, when we see all the change taking place, whether it's in our culture, with its morality, whether it's with our politics, or even with this pandemic, I pray, Father, that you would direct our hearts to something that is lasting, unchanging. Direct our hearts to our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let that serve as an anchor for our souls when it seems like everything else around us is moving. God, I pray that you would also develop in us a greater faithfulness as you are faithful. Help us to love your truth. Help us to love you with all of our hearts, to love your ways. All for your glory we pray. Amen.